Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. Okay, Angelica, thank you so much for coming to talk to to me and to our students. Thank you for having me. So we're connected again through our incredible social media manager, Lauren. I've spoken to a few of you so far. It's been excellent to see young people talking about mental health in such an open and honest way. Why don't you just start and tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to here. First of all, Lauren's amazing. So happy that you have her on your team. Um, I'm just so grateful that I've been able to connect with so many like-minded people in the position that I'm in now, because a few years ago, I definitely would not have seen myself in this position. So just like a brief background of my story, I have honestly always had some mental health challenges. As a kid, I suffered from pediatric OCD, um, which is something that's not very well known, but it was something that I did grow out of. And I did have, I still do have pieces of that in my story to this day. Um, But the majority of where all my struggles started were in high school when I started. Can you first tell us about, sorry, can you just tell us a little bit about pediatric OCD? Because you said not Mm -hmm. many people know about that. So what, what happened and how did you even get to a diagnosis? Yeah, my childhood was weird. I think most of that stemmed from I had a lot of speech problems, like I wasn't able to articulate what I wanted to say. And that resulted in a lot of like, heavy emotions, not knowing what to do with them, not being able to tell people what I was feeling. And I had so many tantrums as a kid, I was told. But my thing was all about order, like if things were not going the way I had thought of them in my mind, I would go nuts. Um, But I wasn't able to communicate that. So it just continuously kept getting worse and worse. And I had like a few things specifically that would set me off. Like, and still to this day, I have to put my right shoe on before my left, or I feel like everything around me is about to implode. Um, But there were other things like my hamburger had to be made a certain way, or I wouldn't touch it. Um, Everything around order, like writing notes, if there was like one wrong thing, I would like rip out my sheet of paper and have to start again. So a lot of that I did grow out of. I still have some of those traits with me, but I think I got the diagnosis really just from all the tantrums I was having and nobody really knowing why I was so particular about the way I needed things done. But yeah, it was a strange experience for sure. Yeah. And it's not just to differentiate, which I have to do often and and our culture has to do it a little bit more, which is the difference between having obsessive compulsive personality, which means that you might have fixations on order, things being a certain way, looking a certain way, feeling a certain way. But for those people, it's it's a personality trait. It's not causing them immense pain that they do that. In fact, it kind of is not, I wouldn't say it's always pleasurable. Maybe it's sometimes a little maddening, but those people are not internally existentially dreading the consequences that might take place if they don't do that thing. So for you at a young age, you had to do these special rituals to make yourself feel better to ward off some dangers that you were worried about that would happen? Were they even related dangers or were they just tangential? Like 
A could lead to C. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's where I kind of grew out of it, where they didn't become these big dreadful things anymore. It was more of just like things I could let go of. But definitely when I was younger, I wouldn't say that they were related. It was just that like I felt like everything around me was going to come crashing down if I did not do things the way that I needed to do them in my mind. Wow. And so you struggle with that. You still have some remnants or um, a ritual here and there or something going on here and there, but mostly you were able to to move past it in a way. Yeah, I kind of did just grow out of it, um, which I think that's the piece that a lot of people don't understand. Like I, I'm not diagnosed with OCD today. It was just something I dealt with in the past, um, but definitely still some of those remaining things that have come from that. So work us through, you, you, then you talked about high school a little bit. So talk to us about what happened or some experiences in high school. Yeah, so that was the bulk of my mental health challenges. I started heavily struggling with depression and anxiety, but at the time I didn't know it was called depression and anxiety. I just knew I was really struggling. I didn't really have the language or understanding to explain to people what was going on in my mind, but I was definitely dealing with suicidal ideation, suicidal behavior, self-harm, substance use. I was just constantly consumed by, I call it my black cloud. Um, and it was just taking everything away from me. But on the outside, I still looked like I had everything together. I was a strong student. I was a high-level athlete. I had all these high aspirations for myself, but it was when I would come home by myself that like everything would turn dark again. And nobody really saw that until it was like a few months of my moods and energy levels heavily changing. And it was actually my ex-boyfriend, the person I was dating at the time who had noticed um, some of those extreme changes and things were getting very bad at that point. And he actually had to bring my parents into the conversation I was brought to the hospital. It was not a good journey at the beginning. It was definitely super hard and super scary. But looking back now, it was absolutely what I needed to do in order to, that's when I started seeking therapy, started medication and really just understanding what mental illness meant and then what mine personally looked like to me. So I was diagnosed with clinical depression and generalized anxiety disorder. Um, so for me, that just really validated what I was going through, but also allowed me to like, try to work with myself to understand what my personal symptoms looked like and how I can try to use them to my advantage. Can you tell us a little bit about, so you have this life that you're living, you're in high school, you're probably going to parties, you mentioned, you know, substance use, you have a, a boyfriend, you are in school and you're doing well, you're a, uh, an athlete. Um, what, what was the sport again? Soccer. Soccer. Amazing. So you have all these, you know, extracurriculars and life and you're living. So what was your bedroom like by yourself? Tell us a little bit about it from two perspectives, one from depression and the other from anxiety. What were you experiencing from the inside? Yeah. So with all the things I had going on, I truly say like, that is what saved me. A lot of people think I was like doing too much and I just like got burnt out. But honestly, like those distractions were my escape from my own reality in my mind. So 
like I say, soccer honestly was my saving grace. It was everything to me because it was my time away from thinking. But in my bedroom by myself, I literally describe it as a black cloud. Like it would just be this black cloud coming over my mind, sucking all the life out of me, making me think all these scary thoughts that I, it wasn't about like burdening people or whatever. For me, it was just like being overwhelmed with all my own thoughts and feelings. It was always about feeling too much, thinking too much and not knowing what to do with these thoughts, feelings, and then leading into behaviors. Um, but so that's why I just, I wanted an escape. I was always looking for something to keep my mind busy. That way I didn't have to stop and think and feel all these dark, scary things. Um, what were some of those, and I'm sure there's so many, unfortunately, there's so many people in that world and we'll talk about the role of distraction. And even if that's a distraction, but what were some of the things that you were worried about? You said your thoughts and your feelings being overwhelmed by those. So those feeling out of control, what were those thoughts and feelings telling you? What, what was going on in, inside? A lot of them were just about like telling me I wasn't able to handle everything that was going on, telling me that, you know, like it wasn't worth it putting like putting myself through all this stuff to try to get to the next level when like next level of life, like sports, school, social relationships, everything. Um just because I had so much to deal with. And it was always like, it's so hard to describe, like a spiral of just a bunch of different things coming, crashing down, um, telling me I wasn't good enough, telling me that I wasn't able to handle all these pressures, telling me that um, I I would just be better off not being here. Um, And my coping mechanism for the longest time was self-harm. Unfortunately, it's not something that I'm proud of something that I honestly still do struggle with to this day and something I'm currently working in therapy to try to understand some of those reasons behind why I choose to do that. And I knew these were the answers, but we did like a self-harm inventory and it's all about like affect regulation, um, emotional capacity, things like that. So it all is related to those like big, heavy feelings. And when I don't know what to do, I turn to that. Um, so yeah, it provides some of sort like, of relief in the short term for you? Yeah, for me, it's just, again, a distraction, something else to think about, um, a different pain than the pain in my mind, I guess. Yeah, it, 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 and, and I think it's so, um, when dealing with behaviors like that, 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 are, that are harmful to ourselves, addiction or self-harm behaviors, it's so important to, val- not to justify, but to validate why it's being used um just to pretend that it's oh it's just not good and that's and i should stop doesn't i i imagine it doesn't get to to the real needs underlying that that you have mm-hmm. no it definitely doesn't and i think like the topic of positive and negative coping mechanisms really does put like just continue to the stigma of self-harm and i talk about this on my podcast a lot too and it's not that i'm like promoting self-harm obviously not Um, but kind of just trying to understand the reasoning behind it and why it does work air quotes on that for some people, even though it is temporary, it doesn't get to the solution. And and a lot of people are looking for more longer term effects. So if you do understand why you're turning to those things, I think it just gives you a better understanding of finding new coping mechanisms that target those things, if that makes sense. It's such a visceral coping mechanism. I wonder is 
first of all, how, how do you replace that for, for you in, in throughout this struggle? Um, and I know it's, I'm, again, the opposite of promoting uh, self-harm behavior, but I find that it's, it's very powerful, has a very powerful effect on people. How do you even re- possibly look for something else? What have you found that's helped you instead of self-harm? Yeah, so for me, it was really all about targeting when that urge came. So I wrote out my list, but like the first one is like at the height of heavy emotions. That's when it normally comes. So when I'm in that height, that's a trigger for me. When I start to dissociate, I do have a lot of dissociative tendencies, which pushes me towards that. Um, That's another trigger. And then just the actual thought of self-harming as a trigger for me. So um, at those three things are my main ones. I have my list of coping mechanisms that would work to give me that distraction that I'm looking for, whether it's just taking a shower, going outside, splashing my face with cold water, cold water, um, literally anything that will just give me those few seconds of thinking about something else. And it's hard because when you're in that height of the urge, um, it's really hard to pick the better again, air quotes, coping mechanism in that moment, but something I'm working on for sure. If you, do you find that there's a zone or a time that if you make it past, like, let's say you get to the next day or two hours later, or do you feel safer from, from that? Like, do you feel like there's a moment if I just get through it, I'll, I'll make it. Yeah. It's normally like, I think my window is actually pretty short um, because my trigger would be like at home in my bedroom. That's normally where it happens. Um, so if I can stay away, not isolate myself, maybe call someone, interact with people, as long as I like do that within the first few minutes and don't go to my room, then I think that gives me a little way out. Right. So for you, there are things that you do physiologically, changing the body temperature. Um, there are the tip skills in dialectical behavior therapy. We can, we can link those as, as possible ways to help, but also social connection for you. Um, Mm -hmm. and it sounds like social connection. So you had this space around you that was mostly positive and then your room was kind of a dark place but you had somebody that helped pull you out what do you think would have happened if if your partner at that time didn't do that um i think things definitely would have turned for the worse there were a couple times that i did actually try to take my own life um times where he didn't even know and then times where he did know and i think I mean, I have also had him on my podcast to talk about this whole thing, which I think is really special to like come full circle. But I think we were both just young kids with no knowledge about what this meant. And I put so much of my struggles onto him, hoping that he was going to be the one to pull me out. But that wasn't fair to him or me or anybody around us. So when he did call my parents that night it was when I did have a plan I was about to do something negative um and I I remember being so mad at him I said he betrayed me he went behind my back to bring my parents in that wasn't what I wanted um and the fact that I was forced to the hospital that night just made it like still to this day this one of the most traumatic nights of my life but it, it needed to happen I think things would have turned really bad if he did not make that tough decision. And I know it was something that he needed to do for everybody in the situation. Can you tell us a little bit about 
maybe as good practice for people to know if they're if they don't do know that someone is suffering what did what did he do so well even though of course in the short term he had to disregard in a way your immediate feelings and your immediate needs to see the bigger picture so what exactly did he do he called your parents so would that would you advise and again you're not a professional we're not we're not asking you to give us clear directives but was that absolutely what he did right away what what did he do what was the the sort of process of how he finally um got other people involved to to support you yeah it happened in steps i think at the beginning it was really just a matter of him trying to understand what was going on with me he didn't know why i was self-harming or why i would choose to do these things to myself when you know i i did live a good fortunate life so that was the beginning piece and then it did happen in stages like there was a time when he sat my mom down and he was actually the one to tell her that I was struggling before the crisis situation. Um, and that was tough because it was something I didn't want to do. Not that I didn't trust my family. It was just the stigma, the shame. I didn't want to open up about that. So he did a really good job of like offering himself to say like, and we did all have a really good relationship. We all grew up together. So the fact that he was able to do that was amazing. Um, but in the crisis situation, I think rules are a little bit different because you kind of do have to go behind people's wishes in order to get them to safety. Um, so I think if you do find yourself in a situation like that, although it's tough, it's hard to make that call. Um, it sometimes does have to happen. And obviously knowing who you're talking to, maybe family isn't a safe option. Maybe it's calling a crisis line, bringing them to a walk-in center yourself, whatever it is. Um, I think just a big part of that is knowing the difference between a mental health struggle and a crisis situation. Wow. So that was sort of a, a light on, on your journey, that person. what's You're not together anymore, but you must have a, a warm spot for that person in your life. Oh, yeah. We were best friends from grade one to grade 10 before we started dating. We dated for four years. Um and yeah, like I said, when I was able to bring him on my podcast and kind of talk about these difficult things, it was just really amazing to have him there and like apologize for everything I did, but also just thank him for being there for me in one of the darkest moments of my life. Um, but yeah, it is a really special relationship that I'm grateful that we are still in touch. Yeah. And if if people at that age, you know, grade 10, 11, 12, earlier first maybe moments of learning a bit more about mental health it's always safer to tell somebody um mm -hmm. because the risk of not is greater than the risk of uh, a, a, a friend will eventually hopefully understand um why you're doing what you're doing and the most important thing is we want to be there for our friends even if it's in a way that we're not that they don't feel is best for them in the moment so that was high school for you, uh, just a little bit about the difference for your experience between feeling depressed and feeling anxious. We use these words a lot. Um, can you just help us help describe the different experiences that those two play a role in in your life? Mm -hmm. Have you heard the analogy of like the Eeyore and Tigger from Winnie the Pooh? No. Okay. That's how I describe it. Cause that's exactly what it feels like. But like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh is described as depressed and very low energy and then tigger is like anxious hyperactive like all the time um so a lot of people on social media do use that analogy and that's something that's resonated with me because 
you know, like when I was out and about, I would kind of be in that tigger mentality, like go, 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 get everything done. Um, but a lot of my anxiety was physiological. Like I would, I still have a lot of stomach issues and like, I would shake a lot whenever I would get overwhelmed and trying to just like channel that energy into something productive. But at the time I was not able to control it. Um, everybody would tell me to practice yoga, do mindfulness meditation. And that would actually cause me panic attacks, like having to sit still. And I was brought to a yoga class and I had to leave because I just got so overwhelmed. So that would kind of be like my ticker side. And then my Eeyore side was just more like the depression, just being very no motivation for anything, very done with everything all around me. So that's kind of how I would describe it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I just think as a side point, it's just so important to, for people listening that general advice and guidelines don't always fit the individual. We are very pro in our society, both in the therapy world and the non-therapy world, pro mindfulness and uh, body awareness and things like that. But it doesn't work for every single person in every single situation. There's counter, you know, there's such times when it would be counterintuitive or not helpful to, to start focusing on your breathing or to start focusing on just your mind. And sometimes people are trying to get out of the mind. Um, so it, general general advice about doing yoga and meditation might help be helpful for certain people as a general strategy, but uh, it's certainly not for everybody in every situation. So you, that did not work for you in in that way and in that capacity. But it's funny because I love yoga now. And I think right. it's just like something that I've had to grow with. And at the time that coping mechanism did not feel safe for me because being still being quiet with my thoughts, like was a trigger for me. And you didn't um, so yet, I think that's something weren't to able about. to manage that yet at that no. point. No. Right. So these, so, so Eeyore and, and what was the other Take person? Tigger and Eeyore. Okay. So those are, those are the two experiences. So depression is, is low energy, lethargic, not wanting to engage in life. And then Tigger is more about like too worried about things that are like fear and too much going mm -hmm. on and not knowing like what to do and over being overwhelmed. Yeah. Also just like hyperactivity, like always wanting to do the next thing and just go, go, go. <laughs> right. So because those are... It's really tough when they go together. I, I find personally what's so hard about depression, helping people with depression versus anxiety, and this is just my experience in doing so, both have a similar root, um, at least on, on, a, on a, in a practical level and how to help people at the beginning. You want to help people with depression get back to life. It's called behavioral activation, start engaging in the activities with no expectations that they're going to feel better, but just to be doing things that are helpful hopefully somewhat pleasurable, but mostly meaningful and building skills and building competency, doing it without any feelings of feeling good about it. And, and with anxiety, you're also facing your life. You do exposures, you, you do things that you're afraid of. The, the thing about anxiety when you work on it is that a lot of people, once they start facing those things over a period of time, they start to feel stronger. It's like a power uh, that comes and, and, and you can see really something incredibly transformational. Sometimes getting re-engaged in life does the same thing for depression, but I find it's just so hard because you're doing something and you're pushing yourself to doing something. And if you don't do something, it's going to be worse. Mostly, of course, you might need a moment here to, to do less, but the sickening thing about 
the depression is that you don't want to do anything, but the only thing that's going to get you out of it and make it not worse, worse is to do something and to live life. But it like just robs the energy from you. I think with depression too, a lot of it is putting on that brave face when you're in front of other people. So like you're able to do the things you're able to go out and live your life normally, but then like, like in my situation, when you're alone, that's when it all comes back. So I think like having to hide it or feel like you have to hide it in public is definitely something that contributes to those feelings for sure. So when it comes to distraction, uh, you've used that word a number of times. So I get, I find that to be a challenging word to relate to. For example, I have people that I'm working with that are struggling um, with, with an issue they're worried about. Uh, but it's not an, a real issue that's actually happening. It's it's a fear that's not based in reality, especially the work I do with people that are struggling with OCD. They're fear fearful of things happening, bad things happening to them that aren't in touch with reality. And so when I talk to them about disengaging from their mental rumination and their compulsive, their compulsive behaviors and finding other things to do with their time, they they use the word, it's a, oh, so find distractions to help me. But I don't understand that because why is that a distraction? Wouldn't the distraction be whatever your brain is telling you is a problem that's not really a problem? Isn't that a distraction? And so doing anything else with your time is just a better use of time. So do you see it as, you know, getting out of my room as a distraction or is being in your room in that state, in that, in that experience, is that a big distraction in and of itself for you? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think the way you frame it in your mind has a big thing to do with like the benefits you'll feel from it. Um, I think in high school, I would 100% call them distractions, like going to school, going to soccer, keeping myself busy with literally anything was a distraction from my mind. That's what I was looking for. And like, I, I was such a dedicated soccer player as well. So even if I didn't have practice that night, I would go out and like kick the ball around for a few hours because that's, it definitely was a positive way of coping. But for me, I was looking for the distraction. I did not want to be alone with my thoughts. I did not want to feel anything. I just wanted to like be in the zone, fall at my feet. I was happiest. Um, but like today, it's less of a distraction. And I think more of that like good use of time. And I think something I talk about all the time is like the idea of intentionality, picking things with intention. So like, are you distracting yourself from your mind or am I going to intentionally like go outside for a walk to like better my mental and physical health. It's like all about what you tell yourself and how you frame it, I think. Um, so yeah, I think that word distraction can have different implications for people. It's really the context of, of the behavior. Um, mm -hmm. And it sounds like you, at when you were in high school, it wasn't that the thoughts themselves had meaningful content. Like they were telling you, let's say you were failing school and your thoughts were telling you, you're not studying enough. You're not doing well. You need to pick up your game here. That would be a useful thought to have that would hopefully propel you to make some changes. Um, even if it was a harsh thought, you could re reframe some of it and, and, and relate to it differently, but it would be telling you something. It wasn't that the mind was telling you real information, but you, you were distracting yourself. You just didn't want to be with your mind at all. Mm -hmm. It was just not a good place to be with. Is that? Do, do you think that was just generally what was so scary and hard about that time was that being alone with meant being with your mind, which was like a guest um, that maybe was like really abusive and really hateful and scary and unpredictable. And you never know what you're going to start thinking about. Like, was that what it was feeling like? 
Yeah, it was more just like the overwhelm, I think, is like the umbrella term I would use for it. It was just so overwhelming to be by myself with my thoughts. So I always needed something to keep me busy. And and the activities that you did were incredibly helpful. And if you, again, maybe this is what you're working on that we'll get to, it wasn't, the problem wasn't that you were doing all those activities. Some people were trying to diagnose it. It's about the function and the context. It wasn't that you were using those things to you know, avoid other parts of your life, et cetera, et cetera. Those were the most meaningful activities you could have been doing at that time. There was just something else that you weren't doing, which was dealing with your mental health um, when it was relevant and when it was coming up and getting getting the support and working on things. But everything else that you were doing was actually really good for you because if you weren't doing those things, maybe you'd be spending even more hours in that state. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So can you work us now um, just through the timeline um, from high school, getting help after your boyfriend finally um, staged sort of an intervention, so to speak. So what happened after that? Um, that's really what kickstarted the whole therapy medication journey for me, which was terrifying. It was hard. I remember I went through like five therapists in three months trying to find one that worked, but it was also at a weird stage in my life where I was about to go away to university, so I couldn't start seeing a therapist. I was also not 18 yet, so it was that weird like child versus adult psychologist. So I just ran into all the barriers. It was so tough. My mom went through so much trying to find someone that would take me. But at that time, I was also going to the States for soccer for my first year of college. So there was just so much happening to try to balance. Um and then with my soccer stuff, I went through five knee surgeries in five years in the middle of high school and then to college when I transferred back home. So there was just, yeah, sorry. There's so, it's so hard to try to make it like wow. understandable. No, it's but definitely yeah, there was understandable, a lot going on. Five surgeries. So your knees yeah. just like did not want to play, did not. No. And they were all fluke accidents. And I always say that like, I swear I'm really good at recovery. Each injury I had, I got back to like 150% physically. I was fine. Um, but then just another random thing happened. Wow. Wow. So that eventually, so it was, there was a rocky transition from, uh, let's call it adolescence to adulthood support. Mm -hmm. And I think because soccer was such a big part of my life that obviously caused a whole bunch of other mental health issues. I lost my main coping mechanism. I was always in the training room, always known as the injured kid. Um, so I definitely did go through a lot of like grief, struggling times. I was seeing like a sports psychologist. Um, yeah, just a lot of rocky things along the way, but I think everything did happen the way it was supposed to, unfortunately, but yes. So after okay so soccer you're playing so your your surgery so tell us keep going yeah so i went to the states for two years i got hurt the summer before i was supposed to go so i had to redshirt my first year went to rehab uh, for the whole year with training room finally got cleared for training in spring after i got cleared five days later i stood up from a chair and i tore my meniscus so fluke um so I right away, like I wasn't really broken down yet. I'm like, okay, you know what? It's fine. I'll get ready for next season. Cause at this point it was February season starts in August. Um, but then I got my MRI results and I needed another full surgery and would have to medically redshirt for the second year. 
So that was really tough because I mean, I'm like eight hours away from home. I worked my whole life to play division one soccer, all this stuff. I thought that was my third surgery because I had one before that. Um, and I was also just going through like some tough personal relationships down there. So I made the decision to transfer back home to Western university, which that in itself was more than just like transferring schools or whatever. It was like giving up my whole dream because obviously playing at division one would have like been the entry level for the next step in my soccer career. Um, so yeah, coming back home was so hard. I remember my dad called me being like, are, are you sure this is what you want? Like, we'll support you to get you back for next year. Um, but I just remember being like so confident in my decision saying like, I know this sucks, but like, it's what I need to do. And ultimately it was, it was giving up. It felt like shedding like that past version of myself and stepping into this new, like evolved version. And that's where I started getting involved in like community mental health stuff and actually finding who I was outside of soccer. Wow. And so that's what you've been up to. I mean, you graduated from Western and we'll hear about sort of the, the, the bow tie of the, in particular with your Western story in a second, but since you've been back, you went to Western and you started getting involved in advocacy and now you're doing, you have a whole channel with advocacy. Tell us what it's like to be an advocate. Yeah, it's really, really special. I mean, I started sharing a little bit of my story um, in my first year of university and that was like kind of half well-received, half not. I had a lot of people telling me like, don't share this stuff online. Future employers are going to look at it. People are going to talk bad about you. Like a lot of still like stigma and shame kind of pressed on that, which shied me away from doing it for quite some time. But I think as I continued to live with clinical depression, which how I describe it is that like, it really is random. There doesn't always have to be a trigger. Like that black cloud can kind of just show up and you have to deal with it. Um, so I was still like, even still to this day, I'll deal with it. That just comes and goes. So as I had more experience with it, I just, I think became more passionate about wanting to share my story and helping others, just knowing how much I was struggling just a few years prior and how much I'd grown from my own experiences. Um, so I just started sharing on social media, started getting involved in like groups on campus and then turned into a podcast in 2021, which I call my COVID passion project because I had a, for the first time in my life, a lot of time on my hands. So I wanted to turn it into something productive. What are some of the challenges that you have in being an advocate? It's very public. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. trying to put my own agenda on. I guess I said that. Is that a challenge? But yeah, what are some of the challenges of of being in an advocacy role? I think honestly, exactly what I shared, like having people look at you differently, um, being worried that again, a future employer, and these might all just be like inherited things that have been ingrained in me from the older generation, particularly. Um, but just being very vulnerable and sharing some of like the darkest and scariest moments that I've been through and still continue to go through, honestly. Um, it's hard to have other people know you at that level. Like it's easy to share that with your close friends and family, but like to put that on a public platform and sharing things like self-harm, suicidal ideation, some of these heavy topics, it's, it's challenging. And sometimes I do have to like 
work up the courage, remind myself of why I'm doing this. And maybe it's reading old messages from people who listened to an episode and they were like, oh my God, this has been amazing. Like, it's exactly what I needed to hear. Um, so that like reinforcement, just reminding me that what I'm doing is making an impact. And if I have to be the vulnerable, vulnerable one to share it, then so be it. <laughs> so tell us maybe a story that encompasses the the most meaningful parts of being an advocate. You mentioned people message you. Is there something in particular that stands out that really defines that? Um, I think the most impactful thing for me was I shared um, my pride story on my podcast two years ago now. Um, and I have never received better feedback from that episode. And I am like still just in, I get so emotional thinking about it because it was such a like the most vulnerable thing I could share, I think even more than my mental health struggles. Um, but the amount of people that messaged me saying that they were going through a similar situation, they had similar fears and insecurities, um, family struggles that came from being in the same sex relationship, like all those things are something that I think I've kept to myself for so long. And I was even hesitant to put that episode out because of whatever backlash was going to come from it. But I think that's probably like one of the proudest things I've ever done to really share myself with the world in that way. And then to have so many people resonate with it was just such a special thing. For people that don't necessarily want to take on the role and the responsibility uh, and the burden that of being an advocate and being so public, it's it again, so much benefit, probably a lot of challenges for you. What do you recommend in terms of first steps? Is is it always reach out to a family member or a loved one if you're if you're not talking about your mental health at all right now? So you're not even at the stage where you're even thinking about being an advocate. You're just not talking about it. What are what are the first steps that that people can take? Um, maybe practical or realistic steps that people can take to to improve their situation. Mm -hmm. I would say two things. So the first is like more individual. So just being authentic, honestly, and that encompasses so many things. So if you know you're struggling, putting on a brave face is only going to make things worse. Like I knew and I, like I found out in my experience, um, but just being really honest with yourself and with your close support system, people you can trust saying that, you know what, like I'm having a bad day. I'm struggling with these things, not really sure what to do. And then being honest about what you're looking for. Like are you looking for advice? Are you looking for just a shoulder to cry on? Do you need someone to watch a movie with? Like, just take some time to really reflect on what your needs are and be vocal about that with the people you can trust. Because I think the more we're able to accept like some of those hard things ourselves, the larger impact it will have on society. Um, and then my second piece would just be being aware of our language. So that's more like on a societal level, um, I know we talked about this when you came on my podcast, but just being very aware of terms that are being thrown out and you don't have to be like a big public advocate to call someone in for what they're saying rather than call someone out, um, terms like, oh, this is so depressing or I'm going to kill myself. Like these things have major triggers and implications on people. Um, so if you do hear something like that, it's just as simple as like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't say that. Let's find another way to rephrase that. I think that's just such a simple way to reduce some of that stigma. And 
recently, so I, I know the struggles are still ongoing and you're you're working through it on on so many levels. I think that's also important. I mean, hopefully things have improved and it sounds like they really have. But a lot of times you hear these stories and it's someone ha- having struggled and then it's like a, a typical movie situation where it's like the hero's journey and now they just live happily ever after. And I just don't, I also think that that creates a lot of pressure. Like there people are expecting, oh, I open up or I do a couple of things in a Eureka and I'm going to be okay for the rest of my life. And I don't think that that's a message that's really authentic and real. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not what you're doing as an advocate. You're not an advocate saying I'm on the other side and enlightened. I'm a guru about this and come here for me. It's more like I'm doing better and I'm trying to improve every day. I'm still struggling and here's my journey. Here's my story. Yeah. One of my biggest goals is to just always be transparent about what I'm going through. And I say all the time, I'm not cured. I still really struggle with clinical depression specifically sometimes. And just being honest about like, you know, it's not just this one little hump you get over and then you're fine for the rest of your life. And just knowing that mental health involves maintenance, it's a part of your life. It's going to be a part of your life for the rest of your life. Um, So just knowing that this is something that you need to prioritize and take care of, and that will look different based on where you're at in your journey. So tell us about the TEDx talk that you did. What was the experience? Like, I'm sure you were not afraid at all for that. And it, and yeah. So what (laughs) was was that like? I was terrified. No, I was really scared. I was honestly shocked that I got that opportunity. I shared on LinkedIn yesterday, actually just being like, I was so honored to receive an interview, but I a hundred percent did not think I was going to get it. I said, like, I thought they were looking for more academic prestige or like reputable status. Um, So when I got selected, I was honestly shocked. Um, I was dealing with a lot of like doubt, anxiety, imposter syndrome, because I genuinely did not believe that I deserved to be up on that stage. But I did it. I went up. I shared these things that I'm passionate about. I shared my honest, authentic and raw truth. Um, And I did talk about the topic of clinical depression and really just this idea of learning to grow with your illness instead of against it, which is something that I truly believe has like changed my life. And it's all about like I shared how putting on a brave face, trying to show show the world that I was fine um, when I was not. But when things changed is when I was actually able to like accept and acknowledge what was going on with me and then let people into that story and say that like, hey, Black Cloud's here today, not doing great. Give me some time. Like, don't feel like being social. And that like small mentality change that I made to really like work with my illness rather than trying to hide it and avoid it. And all of that has genuinely made like my symptoms improve, my own understanding of what my mental illness means get stronger and so many other things. So I'm really proud that I got that opportunity and I'm excited to share the final thing when it comes out. And it was good. It went, it went well. Yeah. I was like shaking going up to stage, but, um, I think it went well. (laughs) What happens when you get on, you were shaking, but when you're in the moment, what happens, what was happening for you? I said, I think I kind of blacked out in the middle of it because I was just trying to like go through my speech in my head and like see the paper in front of me. Um, But then also try to like remain emotional and connected to the audience. So yeah, it was, it was nerve wracking. It was scary. There was a decent amount of people in the audience and then a lot more online. So I think my biggest worry was just knowing that like my family and friends at home were watching the live stream. And I was like, oh no, if I screw up, they're going to watch this. But 
um, yeah, it was great. I'm so happy I got the chance to do it. That's really, really special. So you're obviously coming into your own voice and your journey of getting mental health support has turned into um, not only as an advocate, but it's also part of your career. You're working at Jack.org, an incredible organization for youth mental health. Um, anything else that you're up to that's interesting in this world of mental health? Oh, gosh. Um, your I mean, podcast. I'm always looking. Yeah, my podcast. Um, I do a lot of work on social media, um, like Instagram and TikTok, trying to be myself and share my story, but also like those pieces of knowledge and education. Um, trying to bridge that gap in understanding and stigma always looking to like be a part of other events and spaces where I'm able to share my story or share my experiences um I also read a lot I'm a big reader so I connect that a lot to mental health as well um whether it's just like a book to escape reality again another distraction but also I read a lot of like well-being and memoirs and things like that of other people sharing their stories with mental health. And I think that's also given me a really good insight into like what other people's journeys look like. Wow. So just a lot of incredible stuff. I look at advocates as people that are taking people, uh, voiceless individuals and giving them a voice. That's why a lot of times I, I, I notice for myself, I go and if I'm watching a YouTube video, I'll read comments and I'll look for a comment that most identifies my perspective and makes me feel good that someone said something that I wanted to say, but didn't have the words for, even if it's something as ordinary, as like just a random video that I'll be watching. So I think that mental health advocacy is providing a voice for people that are afraid to come into their own and, and, and have a voice themselves. And more than getting advocacy, being involved as an advocate um, for people listening, taking the first step to, to reach out for help is super important. There are so many resources available. Uh, most importantly, taking a risk to people that you think you can trust, even if you don't feel that you can in the moment. I, I suspect a lot of times people have predictions that the people that they talk to in their life won't understand. And we don't know that. We don't know that. And um, it might be worth it to take some risks to see if 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 some support can come back from the other side. Mm -hmm. And even like go use your strengths. If you don't feel comfortable talking out loud face-to-face -face with a person, like write it out, write a letter, write an email. That first initial step can be so scary and so hard. So just do whatever you feel comfortable with and then go from there. See what happens. My last question is how you protect yourself from the well-documented damaging impact that social media may have on a person's mental health, whether it's through comparisons, um, wasting time, being struggling with regulation through that compare. I, I just, there's a lot of stuff that I work with in helping people in the relationship with social media. How do you protect yourself? Oh boy. Social media is a very complicated topic. I have a love hate relationship with it. Um, but I think in terms of the comparison piece, a lot of what I talk about as well is just body image and the use of social media. When I, again, was younger, I was the person editing all my pictures, was so consumed with my personal identity that I posted online that was perfect and awesome um, when I was actually really struggling. And I think that just contributed to that brave face. But I've really just made a pact with myself to show up as my most authentic self on social media, no filters, no editing, um, showing as well. I do a lot of like body comparisons, like what an edited picture looks like, what the real picture looks like. And I think if I saw that when I was younger, it would have really helped me. So 
the fact that I'm able to do that now is like something again I'm really proud of that I've been able to make that kind of growth so I'd say that for the comparison but then also just like the use of social media can be really daunting and overwhelming for our mental health so just being very intentional about your use for it like if you're doomed doom scrolling at the end of the night like why are you doing that what are you gaining from this are you learning anything would it be better to read a book talk to someone um and then also just like engaging in a positive way I think has been another big one so like if you're scrolling through my my mental health page and like you're seeing a bunch of educational posts or stories like hyping people up, like commenting, saying like, I'm proud of you, whatever. And I think that just creates this like positive community and gives you a better sense of why you're using social media. Um, so just a lot of intentional use, I think I would say. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I, I, it's an ongoing challenge and, um, some of the ways that I deal with it is I just don't have too much of it, but I particularly think that the mental health advocacy space is a really generally a healthy space. Um, mm -hmm and a supportive space. So that's amazing. So everybody's going to find your, your stuff wherever that they are. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And of course, a disclaimer, this podcast in all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help. If needed, go to www.resolve with two V's .ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www resolve that's resolve with two v's dot ca to learn more about how our services can support your needs till Til next time, time take, take care, care. theme song for this podcast is done by the band mokuse no maguro in their song midnight empty street <laughs>